Test, test, test. Pastors. You know, I heard a really bad joke about a guy who was correcting a mic. That's what just entered my mind. It was a terrible story, so I won't go there. But um, anyway, after Jesus makes these incredible I am statements again, the last one being when he raised Lazarus from the dead, and um, all of these, during all of these miraculous moments that Jesus performed these miracles, um, attempts were made both to arrest Jesus, but also to stone him. And you see, last week I said there was a key phrase, we, we hear it four times in the first 11 chapters, that his hour had not yet come. And you see, that's important because what that means is that the divinely appointed hour of Jesus to go to the cross to die for our sins, to glorify the Father, hadn't come yet. So you see, his plan wasn't going to be thwarted. No mob of people, no arresting officers, no uh, Pharisees, these religious men, no, re no ruling body like the Sanhedrin. Nobody was going to thwart his plan. And so these first 12 chapters of miracles or signs all validate the message of Christ. But now the Father's time had arrived. And in John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to glorify the Father. So the second half of this book covers the last days leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection, the last days of Christ's life. So Luke describes it like this in Luke 9:51. He says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In other words, he was determined. He was purposeful. You see, Jesus was on a mission to obey the will of the Father, to die for the sins of the world. So we should know this, that Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. Jesus gave his life for you and me. So as we transition to the second half of John's letters here, I want you to highlight a couple of things, a couple of events in the life of Christ that we can piece together from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, on Sunday, Jesus made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. On Monday, we know from Scripture that he cleansed the temple. Tuesday and Wednesday, he was teaching there in the temple. Many of the great parables uh, potentially come out of these two days of when he was teaching. But according to Luke 22, on Thursday evening, um, he met with his disciples in the upper room in a house there in the city of Jerusalem, he met with them in the upper room to celebrate the Passover. And that's where we're going to pick up today in John 13 so that we can again understand a little bit of the context, the setting of when Jesus makes the great statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus gathers with his disciples knowing what's going to take place over the next 24 hours or so. And I want us to see that Jesus is fully aware. He's fully in control of the events that are taking place and though we consider this a great time of suffering, and it was a great time of physical suffering for Jesus, he knew this to be the culmination of what he had come to do to honor the Father's will. So listen, John 13, verse 1 through 3 says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, um, during supper when the devil uh, had already been put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands 
that he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. As he shared his last meals with his disciple, uh, most of the evening seems to be conversational. Uh, one exception to that, Jesus um, washes the feet of his disciples and he shows them what servant leadership looks like. You see, um, walking on the dirt roads in their day, most, most of those roads would have been splattered with animal feces and it was common when they went into a home of somebody, the, the household servant would wash the feet of those who entered. But Jesus took this opportunity, both as Lord and as teacher, to wash the disciples' feet, to show them what servant leadership looks like, and to call them to be servant leaders. And as the evening continues, we know that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. We know the, the disciples have had a dispute over who was the greatest, and the word about a betrayer had surfaced. And so the disciples were confused about who this is, and they're trying to figure it out. So Jesus, he did reveal to John that it was Judas Iscariot uh, by giving him a morsel of bread as he sent Judas out to go sell him out to the religious leaders. So when Judas Iscariot had gone out, John 13, uh, 31, it says this, Now the Son of Man glorified, or now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Because see, with the departure of Judas, the chain of events leading to the crucifixion of Christ had been set in motion. And so Jesus tells them now um, that to love one another is as he has loved them and explained that their love is going to be the evidence to the rest of the world that they are disciples of Jesus. The conversation continues all through chapter 14 um, of, of that evening in the upper room with a series of questions. You see, four disciples have questions for Jesus because they're still confused about what is taking place. So Peter is the first to ask a question, and following um, you know, his question there at the end of chapter 13, Jesus reveals the shocking words that Peter will deny him. So the feeling of apprehension, the feeling of concern um, looms in the room as Jesus is saying in, in chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. It makes sense that they're troubled, that they're concerned that they're a little apprehensive about what's taking place Jesus had just told him that his hour had come Jesus just said that he's leaving Jesus has just said that one of them will betray him Jesus has just said that Peter their leader would deny him and so it makes sense that the disciples are troubled and it's in that moment that Jesus is going to answer their questions their concerns and their doubts see if you're here this morning I, I want you to know that if you have doubts or concerns or misunderstandings about faith, man, you're in the right place. Because you see, Jesus, uh, he didn't get upset about their questions. He didn't become impatient about their questions. He didn't stop loving them uh, because of their questions. What Jesus wants you to understand this morning in this great statement of I am the way, the truth, and the life is that he has come to answer those questions in himself. So Jesus, after acknowledging that they are troubled, says our key word uh, from last week. We knew that believe is the key word. And, and he says, believe in God, believe also in me. So to believe means to trust, to put your faith in, to put your confidence in, uh, to be certain of. And so Jesus is telling his disciples then and, and us now that we can be certain that he is preparing a place for us in his Father's house. 
in heaven and we can believe it, we can have confidence in it, and we can be certain of it. Not only is he preparing a place for us, but he's coming back to get us. John 14, 3 says, if I, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And this prompts the second question by Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds in verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus makes this exclusive claim uh, that he is the only way to heaven. Or salvation. He didn't tell his disciples that there are many ways. He didn't say that there are several options. He didn't say that you could be good or be kind or be helpful and get to heaven. He didn't uh, say that uh, you know, if you work hard you can earn it or that if you attend church you deserve it. He said he is the one and only way to the Father. See, is the way Jesus is the singular path or road that leads to heaven. Maybe you've heard in life, maybe you've heard at home, maybe you're a student, you've heard on your college campus that there are many roads that lead up the mountain of faith in God. And that's just false. There's only one road. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. Not only does he claim to be the only way, he also states that he is the truth. You see, Jesus is the basis of truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He defines truth. Truth. He is the standard of truth. And as truth, he is the reality of all of God's promises. John 1.14 says this, And the Word, that's Jesus, and Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And just three verses later, For the law was given through Moses, but truth, or but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, the disciples had assurance then, and we have assurance now that we can put our faith in Jesus as the only way to the Father because He is truth and He can be trusted. The final part of the I am statement is that Jesus is the life. See, not only is Jesus the source of life physically, He was there present, a, a part of creation, but Jesus is the source of eternal life because his blood redeemed us on the cross. Sin brings about death, but Jesus offers new life through him. So as the foundation of life, he joins his divine life to ours, both now and eternally. Listen to what Jesus said to the Jew who was trying to persecute him after healing a man who had been lying paralyzed in the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. In John chapter 5, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. John Piper once said in a sermon on, on John 14, 6, I love this quote, says, in other words, I go to prepare a place for you. And as I go, I become the way that you get there. I am the truth that you hold on to to get there. And I am the life, the eternal life that you will enjoy when you get there. When I say I go to prepare a place for you, 
I mean, I open the way. I am the way. Uh, I confirm the truth. And I am the truth. And I purchase the life. And I am that life. Jesus said to Thomas then and is saying to us today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some of you need to surrender today to the lordship of Jesus to be your savior. But you see, the conversation didn't end that evening in the upper room. There's still two more questions. Philip is the third guy to ask a question in verse 8. And Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas, asked a question in verse uh, 22. But essentially, um, I, I want us to spend the remainder of, of our time looking um, as Jesus answers their questions. He gives them four ways to calm a troubled heart. See, maybe you're here this morning of you, and you have trusted in Christ as the way, the truth, and the life uh, for eternal security. But the difficulties of, these, of the world has led you to troubles. See, the disciples were in the same boat that night. And Jesus, by answering their questions, gave them these four assurances to calm their troubled hearts. First, we have the privilege of prayer. We have the privilege of prayer. Jesus says in, in chapter 14, verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, one of the best remedies for a troubled heart is prayer. I love the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Listen to this first verse. It says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. How many times have we faced troubles? Have we faced trials in life, difficulties, hardships, and we try to remedy them on ourselves? We don't even think about praying. And instead of it being our first thought, it's not even an afterthought. So Jesus gives a couple of parameters to encourage us to follow during, when, we're, when we're praying. He says this, first, that we believe that we have faith in him. You see, if we back up to verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. You see, we must believe that God is able to accomplish the things that we are asking about. That doesn't mean that just because we pray a prayer in faith that God is required to answer it. We don't always understand the bigger picture. We don't understand God's sovereign plan. But it seems arrogant to be praying, to be asking God something that we don't believe he can do in the first place. Second, that we pray in Jesus' name. Twice in verses 13 and 14, Jesus tells us to call upon his name in prayer. You see... Um, we don't need to think of this as a, a magic formula. Jesus isn't a genie in a bottle that every time we want something, we just ask him for it. But he places the parameters that whatever we ask for, we ought to be bringing glory to God. So in other words, it needs to align with the will of the Father, not just to satisfy our every whim. You see, that's why it's common to hear at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. You're invoking, you're asking for the power of Jesus to answer this prayer. 
aligning with the will of Jesus, trusting it can only be accomplished by Jesus. The second assurance to calm our troubled hearts is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, Jesus says to the disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, we cannot live the Christian life without the help of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in all things. The Greek word parakletos is translated helper or advocate or comforter. And it's used only by John to convey the meaning called alongside to assist. You see, the Holy Spirit works alongside us to strengthen us. The Holy Spirit didn't work in spite of us. The Holy Spirit didn't work instead of us. But the Holy Spirit works through us. The second title that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. That makes sense, right? Jesus is truth, so when he leads and goes to the Father, he gives us the Holy Spirit of truth to guide us and lead us in life. See, I love this quote by Warren Wiersbe. It says this, The Spirit of truth uses the word of truth to guide us into the will and the work of God. I promise you that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will never lead you to do anything contrary to to God's word. See, I had a a pastor in college who discipled me and a group of guys, and he would tell us this phrase over and over, that emotions lie if they don't comply with the word of God. See, your emotions, your feelings, your desires, they can be dangerous. They can lead you astray if they aren't under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of truth to keep us in check, walking in the light of Christ. The third assurance, just a couple verses later, that he gives is to rest in the Father's love. In verse 21, he says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, God's love is shown all through the Gospel of John. It's shown all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for us. And so um, it's all part of God's redemptive, loving plan of salvation for us. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that we are loved by God. And that we need to live in and rest in and enjoy God's love for us. So before Jesus explains just how much God loves us, He tells us this in verse 18, that we're not orphans. In other words, we're not abandoned, we're not helpless, um, we're not unloved because we are children of God. The God who created us, he knows us, he cares for us, and he loves us. Verse 21 shows that our love for God is revealed in our obedience to him. You see, as a word of caution, our disobedience leads to guilt. It leads to shame, and it makes us feel unloved by the Father. But I don't quit loving my three kids every time they mess up, and neither does God quit loving us if we have sin. You see, he calls us to confess it, to turn from that disobedience, and instead of experiencing guilt and shame, to experience his forgiveness and his love. 
The fourth assurance to calm our troubled hearts is the gift of peace. In verse 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, and peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, this is good news that we have peace. You see, the world, uh, it, it, don't, don't view this as worldly from the worldly perspective. Because you see, the world defines peace as the absence of war. Or just as the absence of conflict or maybe the absence of stress. But true peace that Jesus offers isn't based on the outside, outside circumstances of the world. In fact, Jesus made this statement and then three verses later says, I leave you with peace while acknowledging that, that Satan, the ruler of the world, is coming. See, what a great reminder for us in 2020, during this year, that we can have peace. Despite outside circumstances going on, we don't have to be troubled. Uh, we don't have to be stressed. We don't have to be depressed. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be frazzled. We have the peace of Christ. So no matter what is going on around us, we can experience and live in the peace of Christ. And Jesus tells us why in John 16. He says this, I love this verse. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus encourages his disciples uh, that in the midst of trouble, in the midst of the things that very evening that they were experiencing, that they have the privilege of prayer and that they have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that they have the promise of the Father's love. And that they can have the power of peace in their lives. And they are all included within the very hope of his words that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now this morning there's really only two categories. All of us fall within two categories. We either believe that or we haven't yet believed that. And so some of you this morning, here today, November 22nd, need to believe in Jesus as the way to the Father, as the truth to hold on to, to get to Him, and as the life to rest in and enjoy. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Will you believe that Jesus is the way to eternal life? Will you give your life to Christ this morning and become a child of God, receive his gift of eternal security? The other group, those who have already believed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you've, you've surrendered to his lordship. Maybe this morning you just are experiencing trouble in your life. And you need to be reminded of the very fact that he sent you his Holy Spirit, and he gave you the privilege of prayer. And he tells you this morning that he loves you, and he wants you to be reminded of his peace. Let those things carry you to the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we just say thank you that you are the way and the truth and the life. And that you're the only way to come to the Father. You're the only way for us to enjoy eternal security. 
Father, we thank you for sending your spirit to guide us, to give us the privilege of prayer, for loving us so much and helping us to experience your peace. That's my prayer for everyone in here this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.